going into a passage today that is so unbelievably profound, and it has miles and miles and miles of depth to it. So if we're not careful, we could spend 10 hours talking about this scripture, but we're going to blaze through this in 30 minutes, right? And we're going to learn some things together, so I want you to pay attention and take good notes. Um, but this, this is probably one of the most profound passages in scripture, and we're going to start here, John chapter 1. We're going to read three separate verses, and they're all going to be in this first chapter of John. If you have your Bibles, open them, but it also should be on the screen as well. Starting in verse 1, John chapter 1, the writer says this. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now we're going to skip ahead to verse 14. It says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the one only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Skipping down to verse 18, this is the third verse to today. It says this, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask you for wisdom. Holy Spirit, would you just stir our hearts tonight and speak to us as we dive into this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Guys, I am excited that you are here. I am excited to be here with you. Now, when you go through the Gospels, right, we've got the four Gospels written in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are broken up. These are the same exact stories that are talking about Jesus, but from four different perspectives. You've got four different guys writing about the life and the ministry of Jesus, the three years, and some when he was a baby as well, about all the story of Jesus and what he did here on earth. And so there's four different perspectives here. If you read into Matthew, if you go through the book of Matthew in the New Testament, his goal was really to reach the Hebrews and so that they would recognize that Jesus is their king. That was Matthew's main goal, is to communicate to the Hebrews that Jesus was their king. Mark goes into a different little spin, a different idea. Some scholars say that Mark and Peter were very close friends. And so when Mark, and Mark basically is hanging out with Peter so much, he's basically writing what Peter's thoughts are of his, Peter's experience with Jesus. So Mark is a, is a very, very good book to read. But Mark's idea and the conviction that he's getting across is that Jesus is, is a king, but he's also a, he's, he's not just simply a king and a ruler, but he's a crucified servant king. And that was the main thesis that Mark was making. And then he develops a, basically a discipleship handbook in his gospel to teach us how to understand this crucified servant king. The gospel of Luke, of course, Luke is a doctor, and he's way more uh, verbose and he goes into great detail, but Luke is looking to reach the Greek intellects of his day and to see and understand that Israel's Messiah is the Messiah for the whole world. His goal is to preach to the world that Jesus is the Savior of the entire world, not just Israel, not just one nation. He's the Savior of the world. But today we're looking in John. We're looking at the Gospel of John, and his goal John wrote his gospel later than all the other guys, so he actually had time to read their stories and their accounts of Jesus. And John is one of the guys, he was their first-hand eyewitness with Jesus during his ministry. John is known as one of the sons of thunder. There's lots of interesting stories. He also was the man, one of the three disciples that Jesus took up 
on the mountain of transfiguration. So, so John has a lot to say about Jesus. And so he kind of reads these first three stories. He's like, there's a lot that you guys didn't talk about that I need to talk about. And that's the gospel of John. So there's the first three are called synoptic gospels. Those are three books because they're very similar. Most of the stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke are similar. They're known as the synoptic gospels. And then there's this crazy book called John, the gospel according to John. And he adds so many fascinating um, descriptions to these stories that Jesus is telling and the parables and all of this, the miracles and the things that are going on. But the ultimate goal for John in writing his gospel is for everyone to understand that Jesus of Nazareth, the man, is actually the true living God. His emphasis is on Jesus, the man, from Galilee, is actually the true living God. Now, guys, I hope you don't mind, but we're going to go in a little bit of a Bible dig-in right now. Is that okay? We're going to do some pretty intense Bible study. So there's just no other way to preach this passage. (laughs) But I really feel the Lord stirring something that's going to be very impactful for us tonight. But we're going to go through and break down these three verses. And um, if you look at this, John chapter 1, verse 1, you've got in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the word was God. Now, when you take verse 1 and verse 14, there's something really interesting about these verses because you can also lay them on top of each other like this that I have here on the screen. If you interlace verse 1 and verse 14 together, you have the perfect synopsis of the gospel of John. You have the entire goal that he is trying to get at when he writes this book. And if you read it in this kind of interlaced in between how, it, how it's written here, it looks like this. And this is fascinating. It says, in the beginning was the word. And the word became flesh. And the word was with God. And the word dwelt among us. And the word was God, full of grace and truth. This is an, an unbelievable, profound statement in scripture that John is looking into. But let's dive into this. When we're talking about in the beginning was the word, the Greek word that's being used here is logos, which is a, which when you get into the definition, it ultimately just to simplify it as much as possible, it's a word that means wisdom. So you have in the beginning, John is declaring was this infinite wisdom and that infinite wisdom became flesh. And that word was with God. And when he's talking about God, he's talking about what the Hebrews all believed. You see, you had two major thoughts during this time. You have Greek thought and then the Hebrew thinking. And the Greek thought would only go so far. They would see kind of an invented thing or they would come, they see some idea like morality. And they would all agree, even with the Hebrews, that morality was something that came from some abstract thought. It came from reason. There was reason that happened, and then you have this morality. They both agreed on that, but the Hebrews went an extra step further, and they said their abstract thought just doesn't come out of thin air. In order to have a moral law that exists in the world today, you must also posit a moral law giver. So the Hebrews went an extra step and said you must have a moral law giver if you're going to have a moral law. So when you take this verse, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, 
and you try to transliterate this. I'm not going to translate this literally from the expositions that I've been reading, but a transliteration, what I mean by that, is we're going to take the context of what's going on here. We're going to put it in some language that I think is going to help us understand. Does that make sense? Are y'all good? So you have this infinite wisdom that's the word, that's Jesus. At the beginning of time, Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit existed together as a fellowship right at the beginning of time. Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit existed together. And God, when talking about this passage, is this divine capital P personality that existed before all things. And that word dwelt among us. And so if it helps you in verse 1, if we're to try to transliterate this, it's going to look like this, and I have this on the screen as well. In the beginning was infinite wisdom. And this wisdom was secured in a divine personality. And the nature of wisdom was found in the nature of that personality. Let's dive into this. John is talking about in the beginning. What other phrase, do you, do you see that exact phrase? What other part in scriptures do you see those words in the beginning? That's exactly right. So John is taking this, this verse straight from Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created. Right from the beginning of Scripture, you have this idea and this conviction that in the beginning of all things, there was God who was there. And there's this infinite wisdom and this word and that Jesus and the, this, and the Holy Spirit are existing together at the beginning of time. Now, if you look on the screen here, I've got a picture. That is a little birdhouse that I made for my wife. I believe, was it your birthday or was it Valentine's Day last year? It was your birthday. I made this little birdhouse for Jessica. So I was searching for a gift to give my wife that I love very, very much. And I was searching, and I kind of was looking, and I'm like, man, my wife is not the kind of person that wants you to go buy her a bunch of nice stuff. She's not that kind of girl. She's not looking for real expensive things. She just, what she really values is thought behind the thing, right? Am I being right, honey? Am I being right? She's nodding, so... Yes, that was, that was a nod. And, and so I was thinking, I'm going to make my wife something out of my own two hands. And so a hobby that I have that every now and then, if you catch me at the right time of the year, I get really fired up to build something. And woodworking is just a really fun hobby that I enjoy from time to time. I've got a wood shop in the garage that I've built, and I love to, to try to attempt to build things. So I found a picture of this thing online. I'm like, I'm going to build that. And so I get, to, I get the lumber together. I do what any good woodworker does. I write out the plans and I figure out. But when you're creating something in woodworking or whatever it might be, there's always a, a challenge you have to overcome. You cannot build anything unless you're willing to grow and learn. It's impossible. You're never going to write a song. You're never going to construct anything out of your hand. You're never going to build a career you're never going to build anything in life unless you are willing to grow and unless you are willing to learn. It will not happen. And so making and creating this little cute birdhouse, I'm thinking of this stuff that I'm, there's problems at every turn that I have to solve. And I finally, I got the, the paint right. I, I made huge blunders with learning how to stain in projects before. So I finally learned how to stain wood and it looks good, praise God. And and I remember wrestling with the measurements, getting and on top of this birdhouse is actually a, a, a pot that's empty. You can put a plant in so plants can grow on top of this thing. 
if it's difficult that it works. Um, but And then I had to get the little paintbrush and actually draw. Now, I haven't probably drawn, I didn't draw pictures probably until, like, the last time was probably junior high when I actually drew pictures. So I spent 30 minutes just drawing the stupid little windows in the door because <laughs> I was like, this has to, and this has to look like straight lines. So I'm wrestling with this, but this is the cool thing is when you see a creation like that, you cannot see that, and I cannot make that without putting my fingerprint and my personality into it. You're never going to write a song. You're never going to create something. You're never going to write poetry without this automatic fingerprint of your personality placed on that thing. My personality is built into this tiny little simple birdhouse. There's a fingerprint that is put into this. Now, here, here's what I want to tell you. Every person here is made in the image of God. And what that means, that imago Dei, everyone here made in the image of God, means that you are finite expressions of the infinite person. You are finite expressions of the infinite person. You and your life, the gifts that you have, the things that you enjoy doing, we were meant to be little miniature sermons that talk about God and how good of a father he is. That's what you and I are here for. We're finite expressions. This birdhouse is a finite expression of my personality. It's got tiny little intricacies. You can tell the woodworking looks a lot better than the painting, the paint job. That's my personality. You can see, and if you take the thing apart, you get to see parts and bits of me. And in the same way, when God creates a thing, when God makes something, I want you to hear this, his capital P personality is automatically poured into that thing. His divine and amazing personality and his fingerprint is placed on the thing that he created because he loves the things that he creates. So right off the bat, no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, you have God's fingerprint on you, on your life. He loves you right off the bat. You see? Right before you open your mouth to speak, he loves you because he's automatically poured himself and his fingerprint out onto you. You are a finite expression of the infinite person. Now, what else has God built? What are other things that God has built? Let's take family, for example. Has God constructed family? He constructed people. So I want you to think about this. What, why on earth does family exist? Why is family a thing? When he created Adam and Eve and they had a bunch of babies, you know? Why, does, why did family turn out to be a thing? Guys, family, in the same exact way, it's a construction of God. It is a finite expression of the infinite person. There's something about family that communicates God in his heart in his nature. Are you with me? Look at it this way. When Adam and Eve came into existence, family was not this idea that Adam and Eve had to come up with. They didn't invent this whole thing. God, when he created Adam and Eve, this family entity, when they had children in this family system that came to be, was not this thing that God made Adam and Eve and said, okay, guys, you figure out a system. That's not what happened. 
No, family came into existence because it was an overflow of God's personality and love onto his people. Family exists, guys, because it's a natural overflow of God's personality and who he is. God is a loving father that desired a family. God also has a son that he is constantly pouring his love out to. And you know something interesting? The Holy Spirit is called what? The comforter. The Holy Spirit is known as the comforter. You understand when we call God a father because he is a father. He created Adam and he created Eve also, which means the characteristics and the fingerprints on Eve, that nurturing and that comforting um, ability that women have, that comes from God. It's God's fingerprint on man and woman, and when they come together, it is a different picture of the triune God. This beautiful fingerprint that God has placed on people. And so family is not, guys, an invention that had to be created because we were terrible. Family is the natural outworking of God pouring himself out. Family came to be because that's who God is. That's actually what he's like. He is a trinity, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are a family and who love each other and who constantly, the Father's pouring his love out onto his Son. And he wants his Son to be known all over the world. Right? Are y'all with me? What's another invention? that let's get, let's get into some sticky territory, shall we? What's another invention of God? How about marriage? Marriage is an invention of God too, right? This marriage is what? It's a finite expression of the infinite person. This is an interesting question. Why should people get married? Let me, let me rephrase this. Why should Christians get married? Paul says, a little tricky here. Paul says, you know, it's kind of better not to be married if you're going to be in ministry. But if you need to, do it. <laughs> That's like what he's saying, get married. Like, Quit griping at me, get married. That's kind of what, but, but if you can, he's like, but this, not everyone can handle this, right? That's what the Apostle Paul says. But what does this mean? Why should Christians get married? Do people get married just because they love each other? Is that the only reason we get married just because we love each other? Guys, marriage is what? A finite description of the infinite personality. Marriage is no different. There is a God brought this into existence because it was the overflowing of his personality onto his people. And the love that Adam and Eve had for each other was a mirroring of how Jesus loves the Father and how Jesus loves you and I. Are y'all with me? Marriage is a finite expression of the infinite person. Do people get married just because they love each other? You have to love each other. Don't get me wrong. You have to. <laughs> It ain't going to work unless you love each other. But is that the only reason? No, it is not. You get married because you are ready to finitely express the infinite person in a whole new way as a team with somebody else rather than alone. We tell people this. I tell people this all the time. You don't meet your second half and then become a whole. That is stupid. You... As a whole, listen to me very carefully, you as a whole person in Christ must meet another whole person in Christ. Yes? 
Nobody wants to marry half a person. Not very fun. You want to be a whole person in Christ before you even think about dating. And I mean that. You better be completely. And guys, it's so funny. Every time you see that guy or that girl say, you know what? I'm just so in love with Jesus. I could be single the rest of my life. They instantly get married in like three months. I'm not even kidding. Am I right? Am I right? It happens. I, I really don't want to. I just, I'm like, I love Jesus. I just want to focus on Jesus. I don't need to be in a relationship next month. Boom. Who's that guy? It happens. All right, let's, let's get into some sticky territory. Guys, this is why gay marriage will never be a thing in God's kingdom. Never. Because marriage is a finite expression of the infinite person. The reason marriage looks the way it is, guys, is because that's the way God looks. It's just the way he looks. He it's this, never mind the intention and the words that God spoke about it. Lay that to the side. This is the outward expression of God's character. And anytime you take a finite expression of God and make a mockery of it and twist it to be something that you want it to be, you've created an idol for the world to see. That gay marriage will never be a thing in God's kingdom because it's a mockery expression of the infinite person who never manifested himself that way and warned people never to do it. Idols always take a piece of God's character and twist it to make a mockery of him. The nurturing mother who loves and tenderly cares and the father who leads and protects and guides that is the outward expression of what God is actually like. Are y'all with me tonight? Guys, it's very simple. I just want to be the way God is like. I want to be like him. I want to be like Jesus. I want to do what he says. I want to be like his character and his personality. Whatever my temptations and my thoughts are, it's upon me to change and mold into that image rather than my own. Yes? The word became flesh, we read in verse 14. Now let's transliterate this verse here. So we read verse 1 and broke that down. Let's look at verse 14. When we transliterate it, it looks like this. And this infinite wisdom, which always existed before, took on a new form of existence a human, set up camp among us. And we saw the glory of the one and only Son of the Father who is full of grace and truth. I want to dive into this verse because this word dwelt among us. That the word became flesh. John is talking about Jesus who existed before time became a man is his thing that he's trying to say. And, he's, and this word, this man dwelt among us. That word is in Greek is the word tabernacled. Jesus came and tabernacled among us, and that literally translates to pitching a tent. That Jesus came and pitched a tent among us. That's the literal translation from the Greek. Isn't that interesting? So in our modern tongue, in our modern translation, we can look at it this way, that Jesus came and he came down to us to set up camp and to walk among us as a man like we are. 
and his fing- and leaving his fingerprints and showing his fingerprints of his father all over the world. My question for us is, what are we willing to build for God to show off his fingerprints? Are you willing to have a marriage that shows off God's fingerprints? Are you willing to have a career that is directly meant to expose God's fingerprints? Are you willing to have a life that's built to be a finite expression of the infinite? Jesus came to, and became flesh and set up camp among us. I believe, guys, the ultimate character in the universe is Christ-like. That's the ultimate character. Because we're talking about the divine personality that existed before time. That divine personality became a man. You understand the gigantic condescension that God went through, this eternal God almost shoving himself through a funnel into human flesh and walking among us and experiencing something God never should have had to experience, a death on a cross. That unbelievably beautiful and magnificent God became just like you and me, became a man. Now, one of my favorite authors and missionaries, E. Stanley Jones, talks about, he's a missionary to India, and I got one of his books on the screen there. Conveniently, it's called The Word Became Flesh. It's a great book. My wife bought it for me twice. (laughs) Uh, Long story. Um, So E. Stanley Jones is a missionary to India. This man was on a first-name basis with Gandhi. He talked with Gandhi. He would counsel one another. They were actually friends, and he writes about it all over his books. And in some of these books, in Christ of the Indian Road, he's talking about his conversations with Gandhi and in his ministry actually preaching the gospel of Jesus to Gandhi and all of the doctors in India, all of the intellectual people. He's a a magnificent man to research. But he says this in one of his books, I believe, Christ in the Indian Road. He explains Gandhi in India's eyes, what Gandhi was to India. He says, India searched for the best possible description to honor their most precious child in the highest possible way. And the description they chose was Christ-like. In order for India to honor on Gandhi the greatest possible way the word they chose was Christ-like in order to describe the man isn't that interesting they searched for the greatest compliment of all time and that greatest compliment is to be Christ-like because when you are Christ-like you take on the fingerprint and personality of the most high because the word became flesh why did God have to become flesh why did he have to become man folks you cannot pray to a principle You cannot worship an axiom. You cannot pray to a book with words in it. You can only pray and worship a person. You cannot worship a principle. If God were to come down and reveal to himself as a word or a principle, let's say God came down and wrote it all over the sky, God is love, and that was his way of explaining himself. All of us would be like, wow, look at that. God is love. But you see, it's not sufficient, is it? Because all of us, to the, we have to think of God to our best definition of love. So all of us immediately are having to fight one another because, no, I've got the best definition of love. No me, no me, right? Because we're trying to figure out what that word means. You know, for, like, for heaven's sake, Greek has got four different words for love, and we just cram it all in one, and we don't even know what it means, right? 
So we've got this word like God is love. It's not sufficient to fully understand, but God did not come down as an axiom or a description. He came down as a man because there's one way to reach human beings, and that's to become one, to walk as one, to live as one. So you and I, when we stare in the face of Jesus, who is emanating off of this page in the Bible, we know who we're dealing with because he was a man. And the, and the Bible talks about how he was tempted the same as any other man. God is not this abstract, distant God that does not relate to your experience. He came down to be a man, and he went through every single thing that you and I have been through. Amen? So, E. Stanley Jones summarizes this in this way. He says this in this book, The Word Became Flesh. He says, there is the hidden God. Here is the hidden God. And he expresses himself through the word. When you take hold of that word, you do not take hold of something standing between you and God. That word, Jesus, is God available. Jesus is not a third person standing between you and God. When you take hold of him, you take a hold of God himself. When you know him, you know God. Just as the thought and the word are one, so Jesus could say, I and the Father are one. Jesus became flesh so we could finally understand what God is actually like and his infinite personality. So the word has become flesh. What did Jesus come to do? He had to, become, he had to come down to become a man because we can fully understand what that means. But what did he come here to do? And this is where we get to verse 18. I want you to pay very close attention to this because this is going to freak you out, okay? Verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time, the invisible God. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, all these people attempted, but it never works out, right? No one can look upon my face and live, God says, right? Moses like, let me see your face, God. Let me see your face. And God's like, you're, you're not going to survive the experience. So... What I'm going to do, Moses, I'm going to shove you in a rock. I'm going to put my hand over it, and then I'll pass by. I'll let you see my afterglow, right? That's what the Old Testament says. And here we have this infant. No one has seen the visible face of God. Um, the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father has declared him. That's what verse 18 says. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, which meaning Jesus has come forth out of the overflow of God's heart. That's what out of the bosom of the father means. That Jesus has come forth out with the heart of God and the blessing of God is what that means. Out of, out of the father's heart, Jesus has declared God. Now we're going to talk about what that word means. That word declared is a word that we derive out of the Greek the word meaning exegesis. Now, you probably have never heard of what that word ever in your life, unless you're in, in Bible school or anything like that, you learn what the word exegesis means. Interns, you know that word. You hear that word all the time in your intern classes, right? Exegesis, you know what this is? The essence of this word exegesis, when I'm going to exegete the Bible or a scripture, I'm going to read a scripture and find the original context that's in the scripture, the meaning that's under the surface, and I'm going to bring that meaning out of the scripture. 
incorrect Bible study is bringing my ideas and then putting it into the scripture and trying to find scripture to support my idea. You see the difference? Exegesis is taking the scriptures, finding the meaning that's there, and then bringing it out to the surface and then translating it in a language that we can understand. Are you with me so far? Okay. Exegesis, if it helps you, is this. It's to bring forth authoritatively into visibility. Jesus has declared God meaning. He took something that was invisible and authoritatively declared and brought it into visible reality. So if it helps you, this is verse 18 transliterated here. No one has ever seen the invisible God. The only son out of the overflow of God's heart has authoritatively brought forth God who is invisible and has made him visible. Are you with me? God who is invisible that no one has seen. Jesus, in this term, what we're saying is he has exegeted God, meaning Christ brought the invisible God into plain sight for all to see. Guys, this is unreal. This is unbelievable. Christ brought the invisible God into plain sight, and he did it with authority. Let's look at our, our main man, Peter. We love to talk about Peter. We talked about him last week. Matthew chapter 16, there's this famous interaction with Jesus and his disciples. They're hanging around Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus approaches his disciples and says, Guys, who do men say that I am? They say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus looks again, maybe even looking at Peter, saying, no, who do you say that I am? And Peter, with all the boldness of the universe, stands up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you know what Jesus says? It was fascinating. Jesus' response is, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but, my, but by my father in heaven. Do you know what Peter did? He exegeted an invisible idea and truth, and he brought it into the light. Christ, of you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This Peter, by faith, he trusted what the Holy Spirit was speaking to him, and he spoke it out in the real world for everyone around him to see, which was intense because at that time he could have gotten killed for saying it. Okay, And Peter is bringing an invisible truth that no one sees and understands, and by that faith inside him, he speaks it and declares it and brings that truth, drags it out of darkness and brings it into the light. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter took something that was hidden, and with authority, he brought it into the light. Guys, in Genesis chapter 1, this is all over Scripture. The Bible it says, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there this, and God said, and God said, and God said. The universe was created through a series of declarations. There is something God is wanting to speak to you and I about speaking and opening your mouth and letting truth do work. I really believe that for us today. God is wanting to teach us how to open our mouths and exegete and declare Things that are hidden in darkness, bringing them forward into the light for the world to see. Now, in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says this, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Guys, and here's the kicker. 
is that how Jesus was brought to earth to declare God, to bring that hidden truth that was there at all times into the light, exposed and visible for everyone to see. Jesus' job was to do that to the Father. When Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, you know what our job is? It's to declare Christ and his lordship. That is what we are here to do. The same way Christ has exegeted God, we are to bring out what is hidden and exegete Christ and to bring him out into the light into, in people's hearts and our friends and our families. We are to bring with authority this great personality and lordship into plain sight for others to see. We as his children are to be constantly looking out for God's finger, fingerprints all over the world, right? And telling people how they can see his fingerprints too. Our job, guys, pay very close attention, is to see by faith the fingerprints of God on people and, on, and, and things in the world and bringing it out to the light. Why? Because we are finite expressions of the infinite person, and that is our purpose, to bring out into the light. We must declare him. And the weapon I am giving you today that's going to help you conquer the devil and the enemy in your life is this conviction of lordship. Jesus is not just Savior, period. He's Savior and Lord every time. Jesus is Savior, but he is never just Savior. He is always Savior and Lord. Jesus is simply the King of Kings, and that's it. Winky Prattney says it very well. He says, we never make Jesus Lord because he already is. Amen? Guys, what I'm giving you is a weapon against the devil because lordship, in the same way Jesus has brought forward with words, the same way Peter looks in Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit speaking to him, the same way Jesus says, this was not spoken to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven, the same way that faith kind of bubbles up out of you and you can speak that truth, you're exposing the fingerprints of God and you're declaring the lordship of Christ over people and over your families. Guys, this, this is the weapon of weapons. You want to get the devil off your back, you declare the lordship of Christ over your life. If you want breakthrough, man, I can't tell you. I, I have to be honest, a little personal honesty. Don't tell anyone I said this. <laughs> I get really, really frustrated at the whole achieve your breakthrough today sermons and stuff. Like come and, you know, buy my book and, and experience breakthrough. Because it's just always about a principle, and it's often never about Christ. And I just get sick of hearing it, because a principle is not going to set you free. Only the person of Jesus. It's always about Jesus. At this, guys, people always turn, people tend to turn everything God is doing into a way to make money. We turn things that God is doing into a marketplace. Do we believe that miracles happen today? Absolutely we do. But people can tend to turn miracles into a marketplace, meaning we have a ministry that's nothing about miracles. It's only miracles. And miracles this and miracles that. Now, we believe, hear me out here, we believe God does the impossible. But miracles, as some of our staff have taught us, is miracles is not the prize at the end of the room. If you tell a dog to go to, like, look at the food I just brought you, and, and it's, like, staring at you and, like, a dumb dog and barking the whole time, like, you know, like, just wagging his tail, and you're like, look at the food. 
Look at it. I'm trying to feed you. Guys, miracles, it's not the food in the bowl. It's the, the, the finger pointing to the prize. Miracles, the point of them is to point to Jesus every single time. If it's not pointing to Jesus, it's not of God, period. You know, the Bible teaches that even if an angel came down, even if an angel came through that ceiling and started preaching a different gospel than one you find in this word, we're supposed to like shun and, and kick him out of the room. Even an angel that, that preaches against this gospel of Jesus. That's what it teaches. That's crazy, isn't it? What I'm saying, guys, is lordship, we need to wield it like a weapon. I'm going to ask the band to return as we close. We need to wield lordship, and if we're going to wield it properly, lordship must require a declaration. If you are going to bow to the lordship of Christ, it must follow a declaration. Guys, Romans 10.9 says this, and it's very important. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart, and you'll be saved. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and you will be saved. Guys, how can we do this? We declare something that we can see was there the whole time, but hidden. By using words, we declare these things are there. Salt was a magnificent experience. And we were really challenged to do this, to, to bring out things hidden in darkness the same way Jesus did. The things that are hidden, the things that the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you about a person, and then bringing it out into the light, and then really some major change can happen. And during the altar times, and, and, and we're praying over people, the, the preacher invited us all to the front. And, you know, it's always a powerful experience seeing God do the miraculous, people set free, and people freed of addictions, people healed, and people getting saved left and right. It's, it's quite a wonderful time. But the Lord always is stirring up hearts, and he's always, he's always stirring my heart in, this, in these moments as well. And so I just wanted, I'm going to challenge this in just a minute, but I wanted to exercise this. I wanted to really listen so that the pastor was challenging everybody to listen to the Holy Spirit and find that thing that's hidden. It might be about a person. There might be something about a friend of yours that they don't see. There's a, there's a quality of Jesus' lordship buried under there that it requires a spoken word to bring it to the surface for them to see it. And so I'm walking around and I'm listening to the Holy Spirit and I'm praying. And all these there's all these people at the altars. And there's this girl who's lifting her hands and she's worshiping. And there's really no expression on her face. It's kind of just, I'm obedient, I'm here and I'm worshiping. And the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and this image of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father with a smile on his face popped in my mind. That's it. I was like, okay. And this is where the faith jump comes in is instead of deliberating, uh, like, should I say this to this person or should I keep it for myself? I chose to be obedient. And I went up to her and I just said, hey, I think the Lord wants you to see this is he just wants you to close your eyes and think about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father with a smile on his face. And before the sentence was even over, she was on the floor crying and pouring herself out to Jesus. There was something there. Now, that's easy. That's easy. You could go up to anyone and say that and not be embarrassed. What's tricky is when you hear something that's specific and direct. And that's what I want to challenge you and I 
is that specificity in hearing the voice of God and declaring something that's hidden in darkness and bringing it to the light and exposing that thing because that's a truth and a fingerprint that God wants to be seen. Are you with me tonight? Let's stand.